Welcome to the Labcast by IAOA with your host, Captain Dave Jackson. Hey, 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 all you Clapcast listeners, this is Captain Dave Jackson coming to you from an absolutely sunny Hendersonville, Tennessee, part of Nashville. There is not a cloud in the sky. It's the bluest skies we have here in Tennessee. It's absolutely crazy. And uh, today I'm recording uh, with a young man that I say young, which is a relative term, of course, but (laughs) quite experienced in his own right. Mr. Ryan Hanley from the great state of New York. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Uh, Dave, it's, it's such a pleasure to be here. I'm uh, I'm excited to spend this time with you. I don't know that you can put uh, the great state of New York. I don't know if you can use that great precursor anymore. In New York. <laughs> there are great people here, but unfortunately, there's been um, a particular class of leadership for a particular period of time that has made it very difficult to enjoy this state as much as it should be. There is... Uh, you know, I, I love the state that you're coming from. One of my favorites. Uh, some of my favorite people... Uh, and just, just the, the type of people, the way they live. I, I love Tennessee and I used to feel very similar about this state, but, uh, it is a beautiful place. And somehow at the end of October, October 25th, when we are recording this, it is almost 70 degrees here, wow. which is crazy. Is so, nice. uh, after we're done recording, I'm going to go outside and probably make the rest of my business calls, uh, while I'm walking or Somewhere in the sunshine, because we won't get many more of these. So you won't you won't uh, trick or treat this weekend uh, with jackets on. Uh, it well th- the other thing it was thirty seven yesterday, so no, <laughs> we you never, never know. know this this yeah. this time of year yeah. is um, adventurous. You can say you have to be very you have to be ready for anything. Yeah, we have seventy eight and sunny today. It's almost picture perfect. Yeah, so cool. Well, I was gonna say New York. Don't give it such a bad bash. COVID really sent you guys down a rabbit hole. I'm sorry about that. You know, your governor and all yeah. that. But now we're past all that. So you can be called the great state again. So I think, but <laughs> you know, you're the one there. There are great people living in New York. I have a lot of good friends. Yes, there, there are. Yeah, yes, cool. There are. So uh, thanks again for coming on. I want our listeners to learn a little bit about Ryan. I know most of your be- close friends call you Hanley. How did that also, yep. how'd that start? How'd everybody start calling you by your last name? Because that happens to me too. Dude, it's uh, this has been my entire life. I don't know what it. Every sports team, every community, in what in every regard of the word community that I've been part of, eventually everyone just starts calling me Hanley. I don't know why. Hmm. It just it's just been a thing for my entire life, and and I uh, I didn't really think too much of it until I became like a little more of an adult. And I start, you know, you start moving communities, right? Like I had friends in DC and then I lived in New York for a while and then I moved back home and then insurance communities and, and just, you know, it starts out as Ryan or whatever. And then eventually over a period of time, everyone just starts calling me Hanley. I, I prefer, truthfully, I prefer it. Um, I don't really love Ryan. I like, uh, Rye, I'll take Rye or just dude or whatever. (laughs) You know, I, I'm not super formal, but, um, Unless you're, unless I coach you, and then I don't want to be called Ryan. I want to be called Coach. But, uh, yeah, yeah. but yeah, it ends up being Hanley for some reason, and I, I just, it, I like it. It doesn't bother me, and it's all good. Huh? That story I did not know. Um, I'm not gonna call you Rye, just so you know. That seems like your inner circle or family. That seems really yeah. close. That's Hanley for you, people. So <laughs> let it all hang out, right? Well, 
You're not from the great state of New York, right? Born and raised? No, I am. So I, uh, so I've always lived in New York, but I, you know, a lot of people get confused because I'm such a big Buffalo Bills fan. They assume that I'm from Buffalo. So my family, I'm a, uh, I guess I'm the third generation of Hanley's in my line in the United States. Actually, my great grandfather's on the fourth. My great grandfather came over here in the second potato famine, met my grandmother. Actually, both sets of my grandparents on both sides met each other in the line at Ellis Island coming here from Ireland. And then both sets moved to Buffalo because they were recruiting Irish immigrants at that time out of New York to Buffalo to the steel plants because there were like six or seven steel plants at the time in South Buffalo. So then that's how my parent, you know, that those lineages come down to ultimately um, my mom and my dad meeting each other, which is really interesting. So I, uh, my entire family, I have like 30 plus Irish Catholic cousins that live in South Buffalo still for the most part. And um, that's where the Buffalo connection comes from. I'm, I'm literally the only one in my family to not have been born in Buffalo. Uh, my mom was pregnant with me and my dad got a job for the railroad. He was a railroader. And while she was pregnant, um, he got a promotion and it moved him from the Buffalo Depot to the Albany Depot. And that's how I ended up in the greater Albany area. Now, I grew up way out in the middle of nowhere in a town of 900 people, but the closest town that anybody would know is Albany. And that's why I say I'm from Albany. Okay. But you actually live in Troy? Uh, that's where our headquarters is. I live in a town uh, called Latham, which is just a yeah. suburb. Um, but yeah, our the Rogue Risk headquarters is Troy, New York, gotcha. which is a uh, you know used to be the third. It was the third richest town back in the 1700s. It was uh, uh, known for its manufacturing early 1800s and was one of the uh, was actually one of the wealthiest cities in, in in all of America at a certain time. It is not any longer. Huh. How do you know all that stuff about your ancestry? I, so I have a very neurotic nature for understanding things. So I, you know, obviously there are certain cliches that come along with being Irish. So I got very into like, what is that about? Like, are we really Irish? You know, a lot of people say that they're a certain nationality or whatever, and they're not, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, or they're just a mix. And, and right, look, I right. fully embrace the mutt heritage of Americans. I think it's what makes us amazing is that the melting um, pot, yep. I think that the fact that today we we are like resegregating ourselves into all these groups, I think is fucking insane. You know, we're Americans and I and I love that. And I love that we're this mixing pot and I wish that we embraced it more. Be- but but I wanted to know, you know, I wanted to know like how Irish are we? What is the fact that I tend to, you know, my, my, my default position is passionate and fast and emotional. And is that because of my Irish heritage? Is it just because of who I am? Is it because of, you know, so I got really into it and, um, found, you know, kind of where we're from in Ireland and learned about, I have pictures of my great grandfather and my uncle served in World War II. I, you know, learned a lot, both, you know, my, my aunt and uncle were both Buffalo uh, city police officers or, uh, I think they were, one was West Seneca and one was Buffalo. But so I just, it just interests me. I like to know why things work. I've always wanted to know about myself. And uh, I think our heritage, you know, is a big part of it. There's, there's, um, if, if you dive into, if anyone is interested in this stuff and you dive into some of the ideas around generational thinking and generational impact, one of the things that w- you'll, you'll read about, and you can believe this or not believe it, I tend to, is that we carry the trauma 
from the last three generations and we pass our trauma on to the next three generations. So, you know, I firmly believe that Mm. one of the downfalls of our current society is secularism and materialism and narcissism and things like that. We, we think that one, uh, there's nothing bigger than us and that two, we're the most important thing in the world. That's kind of our current culture, or at least I think the problems associated with our current culture. And when we start to think generationally, both how we're impacted by the generations that came before us and how we impact the generations that will come after us, I think it helps us frame and prioritize and have a little perspective around what we do every day. And it is a big part of my work, of how I act, how I talk, the, the way that I express myself, the things that, that I hold dear, the standards that I hold myself to, is that... I want to make good on the things that prior generations did to put me in a position to be where I am today. And I want to help both my children and the generations that come after them. I want to do things that help put them in a better position to be successful, find meaning, purpose, happiness in their life long term. So I'm not just thinking about this moment, what makes me feel good. I'm thinking about how to, you know, obviously – this every single thought I have every day isn't this large. But the idea is, can you live a life worth uh, that respects the generations before you and sets the generations that come up after you for success? And that's where all this comes from. Huh. Wow. I actually did some uh, genealogy research and I found a little aunt of mine, like second or third aunt who had done all the research for me. So she just sent it all to me. I'm like, okay, uh, Luxembourg. Okay, the country of Luxembourg. And Liechtenstein is the That's other one. Cool. So Irish, how much are you? Do you know? Yeah, uh, I'm like in the 70s. Wow. Like 70%. Yeah. I mean, obviously you don't know exactly. You're a um, true live leprechaun. Not exactly. I mean- an American, an American, right, is, right. about is, is an American Irish, but yeah, my mom, my dad is almost a hundred percent Irish. Um, Irish as much as you can be. There's, you know, um, you know, there was a lot of mixing back in, we'll call it the old country, but like right. for the most part, uh, very Irish. And then my mom has a little bit of German in her and a little bit of English. So, um, which makes a lot of sense yep. just because those regions mixed quite a bit. So, um, but yeah, for the, I'm pretty, pretty, you know, most of my roots come from Ireland. Okay. I'm right across the, the pond from you. My dad used to tell me I'm a Duke's mixture. That was the term he used, which is Scottish, okay. Scottish. And then on my mom's side, German and Polish a little bit, but, um, yeah. he, he was Scottish, my dad's side. Um, so somehow or another, he called, turned me a Duke's mixture because, Supposedly Duke is like, you know, you're part of the the royalty and all that, but I don't think there's any of that. I used to used to kid me kid all the time. Remember back in the days when they had C B radios in your trucks and cars? Yep. The way back. This is when I was a kid, right? They had C B radios and my dad's handle, yeah, you thing called a nickname was called a handle. So that's who you called yourself, what you called yourself. And my dad's was Stonewall. Because if you knew who Stonewall Jackson was he was the, that was a nickname for one of our presidents, Andrew Jackson. So supposedly I was a descendant of Andrew Jackson, but I found out later that was bullshit. I would, I'm not, hmm. there's no president in my lineage, no U.S. president in my lineage. So, but he used to make that up because, and my middle, his name was Russell. 
That was his name, and that's so that's my middle name. And, I, and he always used to tell me, I, I named you Russell. In case you didn't like Jackson and became famous in Hollywood, you could just go by David Russell. So my dad all this, had all these bullshit excuse, you know, bullshit stuff that he'd make <laughs> up. Duke's mixture was one of them. So anyway, there you go. I, I so, like the term. Yeah. I mean, it sounds cool. So I'm going to stick with yeah, it. Yeah, it does sound cool. So let's start. Let's go back. Um, so you're from the state of New York. You went to high school. Did you go to college? Yep. University of Rochester. Rochester. Okay. Four years there. What would you major in? Math. Serious? I love mm-hmm. math. I'm like a math like geek. Like total really? geek. Oh, I, dude, I, I could read I, you uh, pi and I could do math in my head and I don't even need calculators. It's it's a crazy thing. My son's an engineer and he's like, Dad, I got the math from you. So I just decided, you know, be an engineer. That just makes common sense. So he did go the right direction. That was a smart move. Yeah. Cool. I uh, I hate math, but I'm good at it. So... I just wanted to graduate. Like, I I envy the people who, like, had this grand design for college. College for me was a way to get out of the shitty little town that I grew up in. Like, I grew oh, yeah. up in a crap hole town, and I hated every second of living there. And all I thought about, as soon as I became old enough to have these thoughts, so say 14, 15, 16, my only thought was, what do I have to do to get out of here so I can never come back? I never wanted to go back. And, uh... Uh, college was the only way out and I got into college. I mean, I, I had good grades in, in high school. I mean, I was like, you know, high honor roll and stuff. I mean, I, I was a good student. Um, but it, I wasn't like, I, I didn't wake up yearning for it. My parents weren't pushing college. The day I came home and said, I think I'm gonna go to college. Mom was like, great. I mean, it was, there was no expectation or whatever. Mm. Um, and so how I, how I chose my college you know, it's funny. I, again, I, I I envy people uh, who have these like grand designs. I think it's amazing, and and I, and I don't mean envy in a negative way. I mean I I think it's wonderful when people think like I want to go to this school, and here's why, and this great program, and professors, and blah blah. I think that's amazing. That's not how I chose how to go to school. I was good at math, and I was good at engineering and science. So I applied for the to the engineering school to every college within four hours, five hours of my house who also had a division two or division three baseball program. I was going to say, I I knew sports came into it. Yeah. Yeah. So I sent every one of those college coaches, my transcript from high school and a cassette tape of me hitting a baseball. And, um, I said, and I sent along a letter the letter was, you know, said whatever, but the basically TLDR of that, you know, too long didn't read of that letter was, I am going to go to whichever school gives me the most money to come play there. <laughs> I'm a poor kid from the country. I don't have money to go to college. My yeah. parents aren't paying for college. So whoever gives me the most money is going to get a six foot three power hitting catcher. And, you know, I'm not going to hurt your grade point average. And I got offers from every single school to varying degrees. Um, which is cool. There was like 17 schools that accepted me. Um, and University of Rochester gave me the best package. So that's where I went. Any D1 I, schools? I went there. What? Any D1 schools? No, I uh, I was I didn't have the foot speed for D1. Um, it's funny. Today, Catchers I am probably don't need twice foot speed. As, what? Catchers don't need foot speed. Yeah, if you play Division One, you do. You, you, you have to be able to hit certain time trials and different stuff like that. But, uh, um, you know... So there's 
you know, I mean, look, I got, I went to three pro tryouts. So, you know, I know for a fact, you know, kind of what the, what the characteristics are that they're looking for. Even the slow ass catchers that you see on, on, uh, uh, in the major leagues where you're like, that guy's slow, that guy's faster than every other regular human being. So he might look slow on TV because <laughs> he's running next to Ronald Acuna Jr. Right, he's right. fast in life. Right. So true. like, you know, so the, you know, that was, that was how I, you know, I, there was no like, I can't wait to go to the University of Rochester. In fact, the University of Rochester was probably the antithesis of the type of school I would have wanted to go to, but they gave me the most money, so that's where I went. So what was your college lifetime uh, batting average? Just below 400. I hit like 380 or something like that. Wow. Yeah, I was was a good hitter. That's respectable. yeah, yeah, I mean, I probably could have played better. I drank way too much. Well, um, I don't think everybody you know, knows this, but in college, especially smaller colleges, there's a ton of 400 hitters. Everybody thinks, oh, 400, that's not reachable. Yeah, but you're playing with metal bats. There, Yeah, you're there's a ton of 400 kids. hitters. 300 hitter is barely average. So just so you know, folks, yeah. 400 is good. Don't get me wrong. That's pre- pretty good. But it's not like you're like, you know, number one draft pick, you know, in the amateur draft no yeah again and it's division three so right, you know right. the big difference between division three and division one is not the hitters it's the pitching yeah that's that's really the defining difference is that uh and, and really maybe like defense a little bit the the hitters mm-hmm. you get you get incredible hitters up and down and if you look at an mlb draft you'll get a lot of division three hitters that'll get picked up um you know in the later rounds mm-hmm. but the pitching is the big difference so where you know if you went and played for a division one school uh, you're you're looking at low to mid nineties every every day with every pitcher. Right. You know, we'd 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 face occasionally like a number one pitcher, a number two pitcher may touch that high, but maybe even for like an inning or two. Um, and then once you got into the the relief pitchers or the number three, number four pitcher in a rotation, you were looking at mid to low eighties, and that's a completely different ball game. Right. Um, right. So, right. you know, I I enjoyed it. If I had taken if I had taken it more seriously earlier, uh, I probably could have been better. Like I said, I got three pro looks. I got invited to three pro camps. Made it to the second day every time, but got cut, uh, obviously. And uh, I just didn't take it seriously enough. I drank a lot. We would watch the radar to see if it was going to rain and, you know, to decide if we could drink the night before or whatever. And it was Division Three baseball. We had a great time. It was a great group of guys, friends I've had for my entire life. But if if I were being candid at 42, there's a big part of me that wishes I had taken that time in my sports career much more seriously because I probably could have made it to minor leagues. I'm not, I'm not I don't think I could have ever been a pro, but I probably could have got a cup of coffee in the minors for a little while, which would have been fun. It would have been an experience I would have liked to have had. Hmm. So radar drunk. That's what you call it. OK, I'd not. Yeah. Heard that yeah. Before. So how how this works for people that don't know. You know, and and anyone who's played outdoor Division three sports knows exactly what I'm about to say. But like, you would watch the Doppler radar, and 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 all the underclassmen, and we'd all like get around whoever's computer we were at, and as a team, we'd be watching the radar, trying to be little weathermen, figuring out is it gonna rain and is the game gonna be canceled so we can get hammered tonight. And you know, and then you know, you would when you know when you're a freshman, you're waiting for the seniors to tell it's okay. And when it's your turn to be a senior, you got to make the call and go, "It's gonna rain, let's go." And then you'd go out and get bombed. So like, you know, that's fun and a fun, funny story. Yeah, it's but in terms of like, 
being a successful athlete, that is, yeah. you know, not, that's not no, how you do that's it. John, <laughs> that's John Bellucci acting right there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so out of college, first job. Uh, our college first job was, um, I worked for a company that purchased lottery annuities. What? I was an analyst for them. Lottery annuities. So the big winners. So when you win the lottery, you have two. Yeah. When you, when you win the lottery, you have two options. You can take the lump sum or Mm -hmm. you can take, uh, payments. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people will say, take the payments. That's a stupid idea. Cause when you do the cost value of money, the, 20 years from now, the dollar is not, the dollar is, is worth 23% less than it was three years ago. Right. So like if you take the 50, if you, let's say you win a million bucks and you get $50,000 a year for 20 years, one, you're taxed based on the current year's tax rates. You're assuming that, you know, the Democrats aren't going to continue to push your tax rate up every year and also the cost of money. So over time, as we continue to inflate our currency, the value of the dollar goes down. I know we're getting to economic principles here, but like, so that dollar 20 years from now might be worth 15% of what it's worth today. So take the lump sum, invest the money, you're way better off. But if you take the payments, there are companies out there that will pay you a lump sum to buy portions of or the entire payment st- stream. And that's how they make their money. They, they bake that mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Now you get a substantially reduced rate than you do if you take it from the, the lump sum from the lottery. And I worked for a company that I was on the, this again, because of my math degree, I was on the analytics side of that. It was terrible work. I have to, you know, I'm going to have to answer for it at the gates of St. Peter, uh, you know, when he's asking me about the things that I did in my life right. because it was horrible, horrible work. He already knows. It. But but it, uh, it, um, it got me to Washington, D.C., which is where all my friends were. Uh, post-college after I graduated, which is where I wanted to be. So I did that for about nine months, and then I ended up going and being um, a consultant for a company called RSM McGladry, which at the time was the fifth largest accounting firm in the country, and I did that for four years. That was you know, really where I was okay. post-college. So are you like most everybody I've ever talked to in my illustrious career? Uh, I stumbled upon the insurance industry? Yeah, it was the dowry for my ex-wife's hand in marriage is basically what it was. So work um, for the father-in-law. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, we were, you know, I had asked him if it was okay if I married his daughter. He gave me his blessing. And a couple months later at a Christmas party, he pulled me out of that party into his office uh, at the house. And this is like out of a mafia movie. We're both sitting in high leather back chairs. His son, my brother-in-law, is standing over his right shoulder. And they kind of make me an offer I can't refuse. Come sell insurance for uh, the agency. And, you know... I, I think he didn't want his daughter to be married to a bum or he wanted to keep his eye on me or whatever. Uh, but that's, you know, I, to be, I was, we were, we had been living in New York city at the time. I was working for American express. I, that job was kind of a nothing burger. I was M one eight K or something like that. I was just a number in a, you know, 50,000, hundred thousand person company. How many people worked there? And, um, it was just work. I, I didn't love it at all. So when we decided to move home from New York city back to Albany, uh, this seemed like a good opportunity, and I'm glad I did it. It changed, changed the course of my life. Cool. Good for you. So how long were you at uh, the father-in-law's agency? Eight years. He was a commercial or uh, independent broker? Yep. So it was, at the t- when I joined, it was called the Gilderland Agency, which is the town that it's in. Mm-hmm. Uh, transitioned to the Murray Group, which is the name today. 
And they're a very kind of classic cliche agency. I mean, incredibly well-run. I don't mean cliche in a negative sense at all. 60, 40 personal commercial, maybe more like 70, 30 now, a little bit of life, a little bit of health, work within 50 miles, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of referrals, uh, been there for almost 50 years now. So um, very kind of classic independent agency. Cool. So what caused you to leave there? Father-in-law kick you out or did you just leave on your own accord? Uh, no, it was more the my brother-in-law at the time. Um, I just wasn't a great fit. I want to push and grow and try new things and move into new markets and test stuff and break stuff and fix stuff. And, um, you know, they had a cash cow. If you just showed up, asked for referrals, and they do a great job. I, I, this is not me knocking them. It's just a different model. I, I, please don't take this as negative. I don't mean it to be negative. Um, people have assumed that when I say this, I'm, I'm saying it like I disagree. I don't disagree. It just, it's not me. I, I, I am not a peacetime general. You do not hire me if you want everything to stay steady and calm. That is not when you bring me in because I'm going to fuck shit up. Like, you bring me in when you want to grow, when there are problems, when there are things that need to be fixed, when you need somebody who's okay getting punched in the head a hundred times and is going to keep moving forward. Like that's when you bring me in. And, um, that wasn't what they wanted and it wasn't what they needed. Frankly, I think we could have done amazing things. I think that that agency had the potential to be, to have today. I think that if they had embraced some of what I wanted to do, I think we could have multiple locations. I think we could be a regional power. Um, but they, didn't need it, didn't want it, and it, and which is perfectly fine. And uh, I was essentially asked in a nice way to find another opportunity. Um, so while in my more bitter moments, I will say that I was fired. I wasn't technically fired, but I was asked to find something more suitable. Um, <laughs> or it was strongly suggested that I do so. What, what which was, is when... Um, what, I was just going to ask, what was it you found that was suitable? That's when uh, I uh, became the chief marketing officer of TrustedChoice.com, yep. uh, where I founded Agency Nation, um, which was uh, another life-changing opportunity. Uh, for four years, I did exactly what I love to do. I helped agents. I created media, created experiences, education, connection. Um, I, I was doing some of my favorite work that I've done in my life at that time. Growing Agency Nation is one of the things that I'm the most proud of that I've ever done professionally. Uh, you know, we went from zero to 500,000 um, audience members in less than four years. We put on two very successful conferences, Elevate 2017 and 2018. I think Elevate 2017 really redefined the insurance event genre. Um, and that was an amazing time. I mean, we were creating videos and narratives and telling people stories. And, uh, you know, we were at the time we're doing close to 40,000 downloads a month on our podcast when there weren't 10 bazillion podcasts. And, uh, it was, it was really, it was really a transformational time. We were fighting against the insure tech, you know, revolution. Um, I guess too, you know, in 2016, when all these insure techs came out and really we were the, we were a big part of the counter narrative to all these independent agents are going to go out of business because of technology. And I'm, I'm very proud of that work. Unfortunately, the national big I did not like me at all and um, did not like my way, thought that I was trying to subvert them. They thought that I was, I mean, these are all ma- narratives they made up in their head because to be honest with you, I was happy as hell. I was a chief marketing officer of a company I believed in, doing work I believed in and enjoying every day. 
And uh, they somehow got it in their head that I wanted something that I didn't want. Never talked to me about it. Just, just uh, basically started pushing me out and then, and then fired me. So um, that was very, that was an eye-opening experience. Uh, I then became the chief marketing officer of Bold Penguin, mm -hmm. uh, which was interesting. I got to see the other side. Bold Penguin is now very agent-friendly, but at the time was not. They very much were a competitor. I did not realize that when I took the job. And it was just very, a lot of friction in there from day one. Um, it was not what I wanted to do. I did not feel like we were serving the independent agency channel. And I did not want to be part of a technology company that was going to compete against uh, independent agents. That's just not what I believe in. I, you know, right. my whole mantra is human optimized. I want, I love technology that supports and empowers agents. Um, but I just, and I have no problem with competitor technology. I just didn't want to work in that place. And, um, so that wasn't really a good fit. A lot of friction there. Um, and eventually I was again, kind of, Though I technically was not fired, I was it was strongly suggested that I find another opportunity. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and I thought maybe it was just insurance, which maybe it still is, who knows? But like I thought I just wasn't a great fit for insurance. I thought At that time my personality, my disposition, what I want, how I push, my willingness to just be the way that I am, I just thought it was I it, I thought it was that. And also I had been traveling so much that I needed to give my spouse a break. Um, so I took a job as a CEO of a local fitness franchise here in the greater Albany area. They had six locations. I'd worked out there for five years. And the uh, founder of that company came to me and said, hey, I know you're looking, you know, you're, you're looking for something. Um, I'm a gym guy. I've kind of taken this business as far as I can take it. I would like to keep working on the gym stuff, but I need someone who's business-minded to come in and help me grow it. And uh, he had very big plans and wanted to regional and then maybe national franchise, stuff like that. I was like, I love fitness and uh, I enjoyed the workout. So I thought this was great. And for nine months, it was great. In nine months, I grew that fitness franchise with the help of my team from 2,100 members to over 3,000 members. Uh, we added, uh, we, you know, we had, we had shovels in ground for two new locations. Uh, our brand had more impressions than some national brands, we were just dominating and it was awesome. And I thought, you know, for the most part, everything was good. Uh, I was waiting, it was 8.30 in the morning on a Monday for a standing meeting that I had with the founder just to kind of kick the week off. I'm sitting there in full, you know, the cool part about being the CEO of a fitness business is you show up to work in Lululemon every day and right. part of your job is to work out with the members at noon. So mm -hmm. it was awesome. So I'm sitting there waiting for our meeting and he comes in in a suit with his attorney sits down, goes, you've done an amazing job, but you're my biggest expense in the business or the bit. You've done a great job, but the business is fun again. And you're my largest expense. Have a nice day. Wow. And pushed a, uh, pushed a, uh, a termination letter across the table. Um, so that was like four things in a row that just didn't work. And perfect, uh, perfect, perfect I segue to my next question. Cause I had this all lined yeah. up. So trusted choice, agency nation, you absolutely loved it. You killed it. And from, from an outsider looking in you and Sid and joy, you guys had it rocking, man. Um, that's how I felt. And then it just kind of exploded. And then, yeah. you know, and then you're like trying to find yourself. So my next question is road grisk. Have you found yourself? 
Yeah, yes and no. Um, you know, I'd say look, I believe in the concepts of it. Um, you know, it's been a wonderful experience. You know, I'm in the uh, – so, so to kind of finish the story here, I, I walk out and I, I felt like the universe was telling me I needed to start my own thing. And I had through all the conversations in the insurance industry that I'd had all the years of speaking and going to events and the trusted choice stuff and the agency nation stuff. I'd talked to people up and down the industry and I got to see the whole other side of the industry and Bull Penguin and, and all my great friends and connections in the industry. I mean, I've had tens of thousands of conversations with people. I know I was and one I had of this them. Idea in my, yeah. And I had this idea of human optimized. Right, this 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 term in my head, human optimized agency, an agency that that used technology to highlight the humans, not to replace the humans. Right. And there's there's more to it, but uh, that popped into my head, and and I started working on that concept. And in March 9th of 2020, uh, seven days before the zombie apocalypse hit upstate New York, I launched Rogue Risk, and. I- Grew that through through COVID, grew Rogue Risk, and in April of 2022, we were acquired in full by uh, SIA, and I stayed on as the founder and president of Rogue Risk, which is what I do today, day to day, and I am currently in the earnout period of that time. So uh, we're still growing. Um, you know, we figured out a process that works. Our inbound process is essentially a self fulfilling machine at this point. And that's kind of what we do day to day now. So I read your bio and it says 300,000 businesses, small businesses by the year 2030. That's still a goal? Yeah. Well, it's a goal for Rogue. We'll see if I'm there when that happens. Right, but, right. you know, I certainly think that it's possible. Um, you know, we, you know, our our model is is think of it like a, like a Tumblr system. Or if any of you have ever watched the, the show Gold Rush, right? Go, if you've seen Gold Rush, mm-hmm. there's these things called shaker decks. And essentially what they do is they strip mine the land and they have these huge buckets of dirt. And they put the dirt in the top and then through a series of uh, like pressure washing and uh, filtering systems and shaking – it filters out the gold into these trays where they actually catch it. Our process works very similar. So we have through technology and a clearly defined process that we work the team through, essentially a shaker system, a a shaker deck. And the process, you know, and then the goal of our kind of marketing and business development team, which which I'm part of, is just putting as much opportunity into the top and then letting the system shake out the leads and the team just closes, 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 closes. So as many opportunities as we can get in the top, we can pump out you know, massive amounts of volume with a relatively small team and a relatively inexpensive technology stack. We can, we can rip through accounts. I mean, you know, we, have, you know we, we did 100 accounts a couple months ago. And one month, you know, right on right, commercial accounts. This is all commercial, just so everyone knows. Right, right. You know, we're not doing personal lines. You could do more with personal lines. Although, you know, I, I know everyone lo- wants to talk about, I, I hate personal lines personally, but uh, I don't want to get into that argument, but it's not for me. Um, but in commercial lines, so, so we, you know, we, we have a system that works. It's just continuing to put volume in the top and it's been very successful and we continue to grow every month and uh, it's a good, it's a good thing. 
Hmm. Could you ever see yourself cloning that and offering that same system to others? Yeah. You know, someday. I mean, you know, there's... It'll be interesting to see what SIA wants to do with it. I mean, I hope that someday they take it and at a minimum... um, you know, I mean, obviously the ideas and concepts are mine, but the system that we've put in place and the technology stack is is SIAs. And my hope is that someday they take that and clone it at a minimum to SIA members, because I think that a lot of SIA members could get a tremendous amount of value from what we, you know, look, I've made every mistake that could possibly be made. So when I talk about shit, I'm not talking about it from theory. This isn't stuff that I read and just think is a good idea. Like, you would be hard pressed to find a way of getting business in the door that I have not tried. Mm-hmm. And, um, and some of it is I'm not good at it or I don't love it. And some of it is that it just doesn't work the way, way people would l- hope that it worked. So I feel like we found at least one process that is scalable and can contribute to uh, very substantial and consistent growth for agencies if they adopt it. I will tell you, it takes work. It takes discipline. And most of the people who are listening to this are probably lazier than they want to admit and have almost no discipline. So it might not work for them. Um, But for those who do have a strong work ethic and are disciplined, adopting the one call close process that I've described in other places will absolutely positively work for you every single time, regardless of your geographic region, your niche, what business you're going after, et cetera. Uh, and if you tell me, Ryan, my my area, you know, we write farmers and farmers don't go on the internet. Well, I'll tell you, I have a very, very good buddy of mine, Gordon Coyle, who is in his 60s, so don't tell me it's how old you are, right. who, you know, I have taught how to do this, and he crushes E&O and D&O insurance for venture capital firms Wow! Through, through this exact process. So like that is not a class of business that anybody out here would assume would come in through the internet and would be able to, you know, be highly successful in writing it, you know, using this inbound process. So, um, you know, that, those are all just, uh, fear, fear-based, uh, right, right. um, excuses, not, not reality. Yeah, no, I agree. So along the way you created Handley Media, you do a lot of speaking engagements and, and uh, in-person speeches, keynotes, addresses, and all that. Still doing that today as much as you'd like or as tail it back some? Uh, I took a little break. Obviously, COVID, nothing happened. Right. And I have not ramped it back up to full speed after COVID. Um, It is probably the next phase of my career will be doing more of that kind of stuff. Um. It's where I feel the most alive. It's where I feel I can add the most value to people. Uh, I I absolutely love it. Um, you know, when you think about things that you're naturally drawn to pursuing excellence in, that is one of the things, you know, writing, communicating, helping people, and particularly speaking on stage to live audiences or, or doing, you know, workshops, et cetera. I just, it's where I feel the most alive professionally. So... I want to do more of it. I will. Uh, I'm starting to take on dates. You know, I I have to be careful both with timing and with how much I do because I have two young kids is sure, the problem. Sure. So so part of my issue in not wanting to spread myself too thin is that I have a nine and a seven-year-old. I am divorced. My time with them is very important to me. 
you know, I only see my kids half the time that I saw them two years ago, which, you know, is not something that I love. And I need to be very careful about where I spend my time. However, uh, I am trying to take on more dates, um, depending on when it is, the timing, you know, where where particular. And and I don't necessarily have like a, if it's here or here, I will say yes or no. But um, I just have to be, I have to be thoughtful around their baseball season and some of the various things that are important to them because uh, as much as I love what I do and I love speaking, that will always be there. Uh, these golden years with my kids will not always be here. So I'm going to always prioritize that time with them over uh, a speaking gig. Thank you for recognizing that. As a parent and a father and a father of a baseball player, I can tell you there is no fonder memories you will have. No no question. Number two memory is not even close to the memories you'll have with your kids. Yeah. It's just not. Yeah, so, you know. But, you know, we're told that. We're all told that, you know, and and at the time you hear it, but yeah, but I got to pay the bills and I want to do this and I want to do that and everything else, you know, and I want to be set for retirement and everything else. But man, the time you spent, get to spend with your kids, believe me, it is short, way shorter than you think. And at nine and seven, you're right in the prime. Yeah. Good for you. I, um, so when the kids were younger, and I was traveling so much, both with Agency Nation and Bold Penguin. I was on the road two to three times a month, if not more, sometimes multiple cities. I mean, they were young, young, but, uh, you know, I missed I missed a lot of time with them. And I, so I was given very good advice by a mentor of mine about five years ago. <clears throat> he said, regardless of whether you're feeling good or bad, happy, sad, excited, or depressed. He said, go find a counselor and meet with that counselor every other week for the rest of your life. Just make it a life expense. Just somebody to talk to. And I've done that for five years now. Uh, it's helped me get through a whole bunch of situations. But most, more importantly, those, that time helps you frame what really matters helps you frame how you want to live your life and you know it's a cliche but it's so very true what you say doesn't mean shit it matters what what you you do do. yeah it's what you do so if i tell my kids that they're the most important thing to me in the world doesn't matter and then i'm on the road four Mm -hmm. weeks a year or four weeks in a month and i'm not around what all they're learning is that is that what you say doesn't matter so you know, that's something that I've really, and, and look, I am not trying to pretend like I am perfect oh, or that this was some sort human. of like, you're, don't apologize. This is, we're this all is human. learned. This, yeah, this is learned stuff. So, you know, and, and I'll give you the example of this. So I have, even though my kids are young, I talk to them like they're adults. I don't talk to them like they're babies. The world is hard. The world will kick you in the gut over and over and over again and doesn't care. The universe doesn't care about us. It will mow us down if we let it. What we have to do is push back. I think we are developing an entire generation of people who are weak. We call 25-year-olds children. They're not children. They're adults. They've been adults for a very long time, probably for a decade. And uh, I, I try to teach my kids what the real world is like. Because I've experienced the real world outside of, say, war. And um, 
so I talked to them like they're real people and I talked to them about hard concepts. And this, I got a taste of that work this summer. So my son for the last three years, even though he's young, has played on the A travel team for our town for baseball for three years. And this last season, going from his nine-year-old year to his 10-year-old year, he got cut from the A team and moved to the B team. There's some nuance around that. Again, a lot of it was probably my fault. The head coach thought that I was coming for his head coaching position, which is fucking crazy because I coached first base every game for three years and didn't want to be the head coach because that's a terrible position. <laughs> Everyone just yells at you and you have to deal with the money oh, yeah. and the umpires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And whatever. But he... um. He thought that I was coming for his job, and uh, he cut my son. My son was the starting second baseman for all three years uh, and the number three pitcher. So I, I say that not to brag on my son because his, his issue was he wasn't a great hitter. He, was the, he had the lowest batting average on the team. But he wasn't a bad player, and he had a great glove, and he could pitch, and he's a good player. He should be on that team. doesn't matter. So when we found out that he got cut after I told, called the guy a chicken shit cunt, and told him that I that he should go fuck himself. I had that moment, not my best moment, uh, I admit. Composed myself, and I walked in my son's room and told him. And he cried, and we hugged each other and cried. And, um, and that probably lasted five or ten minutes, and that was very, very difficult. But then he kind of stepped back from me, and he goes, so I'm going to be on the B team? And I said, yeah, you're going to be on the B team. And he goes, okay, that's great. He goes, I kind of hated playing for him anyway, so I think I'm going to be fine. And then you know what he did? So that was great, right? That was such a great moment for me that he didn't take that, right? He took it as, and it wasn't like whatever. It was like, okay, this is the next thing. You know, this is my new reality. It Mm -hmm. wasn't, it wasn't like, I don't care because he does care. Like he wants to, he is motivated and he's shown me that by this kid goes to the batting cages now three days a week. He is leading this B team in average. He's hitting almost 800 for the fall. And he's the number one pitcher on the team. He hasn't given up a run in his last 12 innings. And he has two strikeouts at a minimum in every one of those innings. So, like, a lot of... I just am such a proud dad, regardless of what happens in his baseball career. You know, I don't think he's going to be a pro. I'm not one of those dads. I just love that he's enjoying it, and I care about the life lessons. So when I look at that, you know, I say, my son has seen me working hard at the gym, working hard here, being present with them, trying to be a good co-parent with their mother, like, you know, trying to, you know, bah, 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 like trying to live this life that I'm really proud of, and I believe at least in part because I live that life as hard as it is. And there's days when I sit in that friggin' chair over there and I cry because of different things that I can't control or I don't understand or whatever, right? Like life fucking happens. And, um, and, but to my kids, I show them exactly how I wish that I had been shown how to live. And when he, when he got cut, the way he has approached it, I, he could have gone, he, he could have gone O for the season. I couldn't be more proud of him because he's putting in the work. He has a goal. And he looks now at that blue team. He's like, I don't want to play for that. The blue team's the A team. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't want to play for that team. He goes, I want to play for this team that's even better for them. He goes, next year I want to try out for this. this uh, it's like a, a regional travel team. He's like, that's the team I want to be on. Mm. He's like, fuck this little community team coached <laughs> by dads. He's like, I want to be on the team where the players play. 
And that's what he's playing for. And um, it's just impressive. It's impressive. But the only way we get there is we can't be lazy shits and then expect our kids to be better than us. That's not the way that it works. Going all the way back to the beginning around generational thinking. How you act. If you eat potato chips and hot dogs and cheeseburgers and guzzle beers and you're a slob, your kids are going to see that, right? They're not going to, just because you go work hard doesn't mean they're going to look at you. What are you doing? They can't even hear you. How many times have you asked your kids to pick up a mess? They don't hear you. They have, they have filters on their ears for our voices. They, you know what I mean? They don't hear what we're saying, but they see everything we say. Yep, we do. They, they see everything. So the, less, so the lesson this, you learned, I'm sorry to interrupt. The lesson you learned here no, was fine. that you actually did, a, you and your, um, his mom did a good job parenting because he made an yeah. excellent decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and to give his mother credit, you know, she and I were not meant to be married. We're just different people, but we, we get along, we get along mm-hmm. very well. And as co-parents, um, I think we do a very good job. She is a, she's a great mother. Uh, they learn a lot of things from her that they wouldn't learn from me. And, uh, I think we do a good job. So I, I want to give, I don't want to act like it's just me. They, she's a very hard worker. She, she, you know, her and her twin sister basically run the Murray group now and do, and continue to grow that place and do a great job. So so she's a hard worker too, and they learn from her. I don't want to act like it's just me, but um, but uh, yeah, it's I and I think this goes for everything, dude. So take it out of parenting, your team, right? You have people that work for you, and then we we'll, we can close with this. Yeah, I got two like two questions they, to wrap it up. Yeah, your team sees what you do. If you're off golfing three days a week, you can't be pissed when your team doesn't make the extra call. No, can't be pissed. No. You paying them a salary is not. That's that's bullshit. There's too many options in today's world. It used to be like, well, I pay them, so they should do what I say. No, fuck that. They are going to watch what you do. It doesn't mean you can't go golfing, and it doesn't mean that at a certain point in your career, you haven't earned the right to have a little more leeway in your life, especially if you're the one who built the thing. I completely get that. I'm not knocking that. But what I'm saying is, if you're overindulgent, they will be too. Mm-hmm. And we have to consider these things and be a little cognizant that's what of what you're it. teaching them. Yeah, absolutely. Two questions to wrap this up, Ryan, or Hanley, sorry. It's fine. It's in, fine. in the industry, the insurance industry, whose call do you always answer? Uh, there's, I, I don't, I don't want to cut anybody out because there's it's probably hard. multiple, know, but I'll give you, I'll give you three names. Okay. Uh, Matt Namoli, Chris Paradiso, and Mick Hunt. Okay. If any one of those three people call me, I am picking up every time. Um, Cass, because I never know what that crazy fucker is going to say. Um, I'm developing a wonderful relationship with Daniel Seung and I have started to really enjoy every moment that I spend with him. Uh, Carruthers is a great buddy. I, I'll be honest with you. This industry, Dave, <laughs> has given me so many amazing friends, colleagues, people that I respect, even if I don't know them that well. Um, I just, I try to pick up as many calls as I can because because there's just, dude, I, I'm sitting here and like, I was just able to buy a house by myself. You know, I'm in an apartment right now because it's only been two years since we got divorced, so I'm still in apartment transitional, but I'll be moving to a house soon. But like, I live in a great apartment. I, I, I live in a nice community. My kids have a nice life. Like, I grew up in shit. And my parents did the best they could. I, I, I have so much respect for them because they came from even worse, right? They came from nothing, yeah, nothing. Yeah. So they got us a little farther. And like, but this industry took my lineage to a whole nother level. 
to a level that I couldn't imagine, a jump that I couldn't have imagined. So I try to give back to the industry, to the people in it, uh, as much as I possibly can. I try to pick up as many calls as I can, answer as many DMs, whether it's on, you know, people DM me on Instagram and LinkedIn all the time, Facebook, and I try to answer and respond to every single one of those as best I can because I just appreciate what this industry gave me and I want to give back to it even more. Cool. Good answer. Last question. Who's your World Series pick and why? Oh, I could care less. You don't the have Yankees a dog in the hunt? So yeah. Cares. But Man. but you know who's playing. I was hoping for Atlanta because I really love Ronald Cunha Jr. I love the way he plays. You mentioned him So I was hoping now. Atlanta would be in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, when, when it, yeah, when Atlanta got booted, I kind of... Kind of just stop watching. I mean, there's a lot of great players, great teams, and and we'll we'll probably turn it on. But at this point, I um, you know, I kind of it's it's Bill season. It's Buffalo Bill season. Oh. So to be honest with you, I don't even pay attention really to much else unless the Yanks are in it. So which they're not. But you're a baseball obviously. player. You got to care a little. Yeah, I mean, I'll watch, but I, you know, I got dude, dude. I got I got little league baseball. I mean, that my I can't. If if I'm Fall three ball. days a week doing little league baseball, the, turning on a game, I don't know. Plus, <laughs> I'll tell you, free agency has killed that sport for me. You know, growing up when the teams were mostly homegrown, uh, Paulie O'Neill gets traded from Cincinnati to the Yankees, and it's like national news. You know what I mean? Like this huge thing that this happened. You know, now every year it's like this big shuffle job, and I, I just, I'll be honest with you, I don't love it for that reason. I mean, I love the game. I love the game, and I, I do watch the Yanks. Kids go to a game every year at least, if not more. But um, my love for Major League Baseball and following it has waned with the um, – Free agency. Yeah. To me, free agency has killed that sport. Well, the owners are the mostly to blame. For same that. with the NBA. This is the same, same with the NBA. Thing. The NBA used to be amazing, and now it's like the WWF or WWE to mm-hmm. me. I, I just could care less. It's just whatever. I, who cares? It's a, it's I, a they don't play cards. defense until the playoffs. They're always on a different team. That all the best players just try to group up and create these super teams or whatever. And who who cares? It's still silly. So you gotta love a, a story like the Diamondbacks. 110 losses two years ago. And so yeah, no, the Diamondbacks are. They cool. built a team, just, you know, in two years. That's pretty darn good. So yeah, I mean, look, you spend money, you get good players, you got yeah. a decent development program. You can you can put guys on. The problem is next year, most likely whoever their big free agents are will be gone and gone someplace oh, else. Yeah. It's just, and that's a shame. That's the part that breaks me is that, is that there's no Up reward for the organization to putting a great team together and allowing them grow and build and get old together. There's just, you know, you piece all these pieces together and, and that's a lot of work. I'm not discounting it, but then next year someone comes into the higher offer and off they go. And it's like, Hey, had a good time. Have a nice thing. And it's like, Oh, Gotcha. You don't actually care. Right. You just, you it's know, all about the money. they're all just hired guns. Yeah. No, you don't so. have to preach to me because I'm old school, man. I've been around since the 60s and the game has changed immensely. The f- crazy thing to me is people are still w- willing to pay the money that they do to go watch the sport because they love the sport. Not, not like you. They don't necessarily love the team, although don't tell Philly fans that. Uh, or they don't love the players because the players come and go. But they just love the sport. So I'm going to show you this right there on my wall. That's the 32 ballparks, 30 ballparks that I uh, have in my bucket list to visit. And I have um, eight left. 
So, and they're nice. almost all in the Northeast, believe it or not, for some odd so you've reason. you've never been to Fenway? Never been to Fenway, never been to Philly, Detroit. I can list them all. Uh, I've been to Yankee Stadium. I've not been to the Mets. Uh, I've been to Baltimore and D.C., uh, Miami, Atlanta, and not Atlanta. I haven't been there. So most of them are in the Northeast um, yeah. for whatever reason. Well, Fenway's amazing. Yeah. Um, too bad you didn't make it to old Yankee Stadium because the new Yankee Stadium is black. Yeah. Um, My son's a Yankee fan. Pigs. He took me. So it just came later in life the, after they built it. Yeah. The, 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 the new Yankee Stadium, the problem, if you've never seen old Yankee Stadium, you'd be like, this place is amazing. And it is a great place to watch a game, the new Yankee Stadium. It's a great place to watch a game. But I've probably been to two dozen games at old Yankee Stadium. And, like, you know, I used to say to my dad, like, you could smell Babe Ruth's piss. Like, you <laughs> knew, like, like the best to ever play the game yeah. walked those halls, they hit from that home plate. They hit the ball over that fence into those bleachers. Like, it was amazing. And just to think, like, Babe Ruth hit home runs in that batter's box. Right there. Right there, Babe Ruth hit home runs. Lou Gehrig, you know, all the best. And the new one's just kind of like a big corporate monster. It's just, yeah, you know, it's kind of doesn't really have today. much personality. Yep, that's how the yeah. game is but then today. You go to, dude, Fenway's going to blow you away. If you haven't been to Fenway, you know, Fenway is going to blow you I've been to Wrigley, you but, you know, that's the next away. best thing, but I've not been to Fenway. But I'll get there. Yeah, Wrigley's amazing. Yeah. But hey, no one wants to listen to this crap, anyways. Are, are you uh, kidding me? This you. will be our probably our highest ratings yet. So appreciate you coming uh, on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If anybody wants um to just connect with my stuff, uh, you can always go to Rogue Risk and just check out what we're doing there. Or um, if you're interested in, I have a newsletter. I have a podcast as well. Uh, both are unique content, so you don't get the same content in each one. So pick whatever you want or both. But you can go to just go to ryanhanley.com and find ways to connect with me. And uh, I'm on all the socials. Uh, and like I said, happy to help anybody who needs help or a question. Hit me up. Um, you know, uh, I'll do my best uh, in whatever it is that you need help appreciate with. Appreciate you. Thanks, Hanley. I appreciate you coming Thank on. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody. This is Dave Jackson signing out from Collabcast by IOA. Enjoy, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to Collabcast with IAOA with Captain Dave Jackson. Production and distribution by Podsquad.fm, Riverside.fm, and Spotify for podcasters. Special thanks to Little Dog Social Media, Terry Champion, and all our guests and listeners. If you're an independent insurance agency owner, please subscribe to our podcast weekly. You can also request to join our agency owner exclusive Facebook group, IAOA, or Insurance Agency Owners Alliance at IAOA.com. Captain Dave Jackson signs out from sunny Hendersonville, Tennessee.